16s in a blessed verse it is in a blessed passage is this typological prophetical simply historic does it not apply to us today some would say that it doesn't apply to the church today I would beg to differ and I would ask them, what about Malachi, the first verse of this third chapter at the very beginning? Does that not apply when the word reads, Behold, I send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom ye seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, whom ye desire, behold, he cometh saith Jehovah of hosts. It's quite evident that Matthew, that Mark, and that Luke thought it was relevant for the church. It's found in their writings in the New Testament. And of course, they are applying it to the coming of John the Baptist. And some may say, well, that speaks of John the Baptist, which it does. The first messenger in that verse, I believe, is John the Baptist, as these gospel writers attest. The first messenger is John the Baptist, but who is the second messenger spoken of in that passage? The messenger of the covenant, or it could be rendered the angel of the covenant. Do you know who the angel of the covenant is? Do you know him? may be the better question. The angel of the covenant, whom ye desire, behold, <clears throat> he cometh. These uh, folks, these Israelites, that God is speaking against when he says, your words have been stout against me. And he vilifies them for their I don't know how else to say it. They're arguing with God. They're contending with God. We heard something of that, the plausibility or lack of plausibility of that this morning, arguing against God. But that's what these Israelites are doing, contending and arguing, saying it is vain to serve God. It is useless to serve God. It doesn't seem to matter. We do all these things in our worship and of course their worship was self-centered and it was to please themselves and they thought that it had merit in it. They thought they could earn their salvation. And that's really what the problem was with them. But they see others and they say that we call the proud happy, yea, they that work wickedness are built up. We see all these things and all these individuals and it doesn't seem to be make any difference rather to them to their relationship with our God it doesn't seem to make any difference they do as they please they work wickedly they're proud <clears throat> and yet they seem to be blessed in in our labors are in vain it's vain for us to serve God they say <clears throat> the unbelieving state of mind one wrote that which lay at the bottom of all their evils, again, is reproved. 
And this consisted in saying that they who serve God gain nothing by it. And also, secondly, that they who disobeyed him were not only unpunished, but actually blessed. Does that remind you of anyone? Does that remind you of of anything, any other passage in Scripture? I think that it perhaps might. But somebody called this conversation, this dialogue, this argument, somebody called it very correctly, I believe, that it was audaciously violent insolence, audaciously violent insolence against God. And it begins in that 13th verse through the 15th verse. But these unbelieving ones we see at the close of Malachi, these unbelieving ones should see in those days, or they will, we could say, see in those days to come that there is a difference indeed between right doing and wrong doing. It's from the perspective of sinners' eyes that they don't discern that, that there is a difference because God makes a difference. But the writing to which I refer, we can almost call it famous, the words of Asaph in Psalm 73, You remember, Asaph's complaint was exactly parallel with what we just read of these Israelites that God was contending with, or that his prophet was contending with. But it's really terrible to read the words of Asaph. I mean, it's it's rather striking and almost shocking I don't even know where to begin, but we'll pick up in 73, Psalm 73 at verse 11, to see the parallel, to see the comparison. And they say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and being always at ease, they increase in riches. Surely in vain, there's that word, Surely in vain have I cleansed my heart and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I had dealt treacherously with the generation of thy children. When I thought how I might know this, it was too painful for me. This contrast that he sees in in what he thinks he deserves from God in what he believes others are receiving is plaguing his heart until what? Until verse 17 when we read, until I went into the sanctuary of God and considered their latter end. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and considered their latter end. Then, then, that huge until came into play. And I believe that that's what we see here in this text in Malachi 3. Then they that feared Jehovah spake one with another is somewhat synonymous, is it not, with until I went into the sanctuary of God and considered their latter end. I believe it should be if it isn't. 
And Jehovah hearkened and heard, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared Jehovah and that thought upon his name. Then they that feared Jehovah. I believe that these could be referred to as the remnant. We saw all these that, that God was complaining against and their, their prideful thoughts and their considerations that they ought to be rewarded, that they ought to have merit for their work and the things that they have done. It was extremely, it appears, I should say, extremely pharisaical of them. Perhaps they were somewhat something of a precursors to the Pharisees. They think that all this, you know, standing on the corner and uttering long prayers and, 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 and re mourning for their sins, supposedly, with, with all kinds of contortions on their face. You know about the Pharisees. It sounds pharisaical, their complaint, that is. But I believe that, <clears throat> that we have an equivalency here. They that feared Jehovah, I believe, is equivalent to the remnant. I'm talking about the remnant in the largest sense possible. The elect, in other words. They that feared Jehovah. What did they do? What did this remnant do? They spake one with another. And I believe we have, a, a, at the very least, an illustration of iron sharpening iron. And Jehovah hearkened and heard, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared Jehovah and that thought upon his name. They spake with one another, these that feared Jehovah, and they thought upon the name of God. They thought upon God. They were concerned about God. These that feared Jehovah. This remnant, I'm going to say in Pauline language, according to the election of grace. Paul speaks those words in Romans 11. Perhaps our brother could have gone on into Romans 11, but I will. He left us off at chapter 10. <clears throat> Paul continues in the 11th chapter speaking of this matter, and he says, I say then, did God cast off his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God did not cast off his people which he foreknew. Or know ye not what the scripture saith of Elijah, how he pleaded with God against Israel, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, they have digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. There is a remnant according to the election of grace. These 7,000 he's speaking of. He refers to them as a remnant according to the election of grace. Elijah. He refers to him as one of those that are part of that remnant according to the election of grace. There is a remnant. And they that fear Jehovah constitute the remnant. They that fear Jehovah 
speak with one another. They will speak with one another. They that fear Jehovah have their names recorded according to our text. They that fear Jehovah reverence his name. They do these things because they are the elect according they are the remnant that is according to the election of grace. They fear God. They love God. They have been regenerated. These are those that fear God. And they only that will fear God in the proper sense, in the true sense of reverent submission, that godly fear, that fear of displeasing their Heavenly Father. They that fear Jehovah constitute the remnant. I believe this is further exemplified in, in a vision that was given to Ezekiel. And I know that it's rather difficult to even go into Ezekiel very much, and especially the visions, but this particular vision and the reading of it and the hearing of it and trying to apply it and so on goes back very many years with me. And it came to my mind, and I want to share it with you. In Ezekiel chapter 9, this vision that Ezekiel was given. Ezekiel chapter 9, Then he cried in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause ye them that have charge over the city to draw near every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. Ezekiel saw these men with weapons in their hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the upper gate, which lieth toward the north, every man with his slaughter weapon in his hand, and one man in the midst of them clothed in linen with a writer's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub whereupon it was to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And Jehovah said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done in the midst thereof. Set a mark upon all those that sigh and cry over these abominations. I'm asserting that in this vision that these that I, uh, Ezekiel is seeing and that this man with an inkhorn, whoever that may represent, whether it be our Lord Jesus Christ, whether it be an angel, whether it be God the Holy Spirit, the man with the writer's inkhorn, who is it that marks out the elect of God? Isn't it God the Holy Spirit? Isn't it Jesus Christ? These are marked. They receive this mark. And after they receive the mark, Jehovah says to the others, he said in my hearing, go ye through the city after him and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Slay all of them that don't have the mark. Slay them that don't have the mark. I believe that mark 
I'm not insisting that that mark is the fear of God, but I'm insisting that that mark represents that these people belong to God, that they are his people, these that sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done. These are the people of God, the true people of God, and he puts a mark on them. And I believe that it's not unfair to suggest that the fear of God, that someone having the true God-given fear, and I believe that that is a means of grace to keep us in place, if you will. This fear of God, that we fear to displease Him, that we fear to grieve Him, that that is a means of grace, among other things, that that is a means of grace given to us to keep us in God's hand and to keep us on our way but I believe that these that received this mark, these that were sighing and crying for all the wickedness that has been described previous to this part of the vision, those that sigh and cry are those that fear God, those that love God, those that love righteousness. Some of those things, again, that we heard about this morning, these are they that are set apart according to the election of grace. And in this vision, they're set apart with this mark on their forehead. And they're passed over when the destroyers come through. And that sort of reminds us of Passover, doesn't it? They're passed over when these others are all slain, even slaughtered. They have a mark upon their forehead. Do we bear that mark? Do we fear God? Do we love God? Do we love his word? Do we love his people? Do we love his son? But these are also they that spake one with another, we are told. Iron, sharpening iron. They spake one with another. This is what they do, these that are referenced as fearing God. They speak one with another. They are to communicate one with another. They are to converse one with another. They are to have contact one with another. I don't believe that it's part of God's plan that someone can claim to be a Christian and then not want a fellowship with other Christians. That he can claim to be a Christian and then not want to converse with other Christians. That he can claim that the Lord has regenerated his heart and saved his soul and he doesn't want to tell anyone about it. These speak one with another. They communicate one with another. Iron sharpening iron. Remember that the remnant is the body of Christ. And so it is therefore a hand communicating as it were with an eye. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It is a hand communicating with an eye. It's an eye communicating with a foot and so on. And the people are thus communicating with one another. That's what the body is. That's what the remnant is. It's a body. It's the body of Christ, Paul teaches us. And there are these things that members of the body will do because they are members of the body of Christ. Not to gain any merit at all, but
but because they are, because they fear God, because they are members of the body, because they love the other members of that body, because they love the head, Jesus Christ. So they communicate one with another. They speak one with another. And the writer of Proverbs tells us over and again how important these things are. And it seems like that this whole concept of iron sharpening iron and of those that fear God speaking often one with another is all God's design for his people, for the church, for the body of his son, that they work together in this way and that it's a safe way. Because there's a multitude, and I don't mean just a multitude like having an army like Gideon had or, or like some other actually huge armies, but the fact is that they stand by one another and they communicate and they discuss and they come up with the wisest, the wisest determination regarding something. In Proverbs eleven, fourteen, where no wise guidance is, the people falleth. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. I believe that God has organized the church of his people, the church of his son, into a body, even if it's a small body. It matters not. It's according to God's plan. But his arrangement is so that we can sharpen one another. <coughs> his design is so that we can communicate one with another, so that we can come together as a people and that everyone has a different, everyone has an idea, everyone has a thought, and we come together with those thoughts and ideas. We don't, we don't stand as one individual, but as a body, iron sharpening iron. In a multitude of counselors, there is safety. There is safety, the people are safely upheld through this methodology, and again, in, Proverbs 15:22 Where there is no counsel purposes are disappointed where there is no counsel purposes are disappointed but in the multitude of counselors they are established No one knows it all No one knows it all And so in the multitude of counselors iron sharpening iron Things are discovered. Things are found out. Better ways are, are unfolded to the entire body through this communication. The eye being listened to by the foot and so on. Purposes are established. And there is safety in fighting the good fight when these things are discussed and God has given to the church all these, all these members so that not everyone's a foot, not everyone's an eye, not everyone's a hand, and so on. So that the body can function well and all these things are met, all these needs are met. And lastly, in 24.6, the multitude of counselors is referenced there. For by wise guidance thou shalt make thy war, and in the multitude of counselors there is safety. 
in the multitude of counselors there is safety. So through this multitude of counselors, through the, through the establishment of the body, the establishment of the church, they that fear Jehovah, they that do fear Jehovah come together. They speak one with another. And they grow together in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And they function together. And that's God's design and his plan. It makes us think of that counting the cost reference in the Gospels. No, no king goes to war without determining with his counselors if he has enough armor, if he has enough men to, to win this battle or to win this war. He seeks the counsel of others. And the one that's going to build a building, he checks to see with others if he has enough material, if he has enough labor, and so on. Counting the cost, that requires counselors, and that's the wisdom of God given. And that's what the people that fear Jehovah are doing here, speaking one to another. What wisdom in the fact of the body of Jesus Christ. What wisdom of God in the church, granting us the church, that we might come together and that we might lean upon one another, that we might communicate one with another, speaking one with another. What wisdom, no man is an island. John Donne famously wrote, no man is an island. What wisdom in the whole concept of the church, the body of Christ, and all those different members. And what wisdom additionally in the idea that we find in the scriptures, at least some of us find it in the scriptures, sadly many don't seem to, but in the plurality of elders. What we find in the letter of Paul to Philippians, to the Philippians, that he speaks of bishops, overseers, which are elders, which are pastors, he speaks of them in the plural. And when he, when he writes to Titus and to Timothy, especially to Titus, he says the point I left you in Crete to appoint elders, plural. And when he calls for the elders from Ephesus, it's plural, the elders that are among you. And what wisdom there is from God in having a plurality of elders. No man is an island. No man knows everything. No man can do everything. There must be, for this iron to sharpen iron, there must be consistent, repeated, constant contact between the blade and the file if the iron is going to sharpen the iron. You understand that, right? In Acts 15, we have something of a, a representation of this, this whole idea, the plurality of elders in the church and so on, simply reading in verse 6 of chapter 15, and the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider of this matter. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider of this matter. We see Peter standing up. We see James standing up. Everyone contributes their understanding, their thought to the body. Old John Trapp, I used to call him Old John Trapp. 
he's several years younger than I am right now, and he died several years younger. So I hesitate to call him old John Trapp anymore, but he, he made this statement, great is the benefit of Christian conference for strengthening the weak knees and comforting the feeble-minded. For strengthening the weak knees and comforting the feeble-minded. And of course, he got that, he derived that from Isaiah 35. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Don't you imagine that some of these that feared God were encouraging each other with words such as that? Iron sharpening iron, strengthening one another in the faith, encouraging one another. That's one of the reasons, part of the reason for the church to strengthen one another. But also these came together, these that feared God, to speak often one with another. Those that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. They thought upon the name of God. Reverenced the name of God. Honored the name of God in some of the translations. This is not something that we must do. This is something that we will do. If we fear God. This is something that those fearing God properly Biblically, spiritually, will strive to reverence his name. It belongs to their new nature. It is a product of their new hearts. Those that fear God, they will reverence his name. They will not take upon themselves a name that has no meaning. You've heard of nominal Christians. Nominal Christians. Nominal simply means in name only. Anyone can claim to be a Christian. Anyone can name the name. Anyone can, can say I'm a Christian. But there are sadly so many that are nominal that they're in name only Christians. And that is taking the name of Christ in vain if you're not a true believer and you name the name. It's taking God's name. It's taking the name of Christ in vain. It's not reverencing the name of God. It's not honoring the name. It's taking it in vain. I know we often think of the commandment, thou shalt not take the name of thy God in vain. We often think that that's a, 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 an exhortation, a, a prohibition against swearing. And of course it is, but there are other ways of taking the name of God in vain. And claiming to be something that you aren't is one of the ways to do that. Being a, a pretender rather than a defender. Being a professor but not a possessor. Being a make-believer but not a true believer. Those that fear God and those that do not. There's a difference. There's a difference between those. And earlier on in this chapter 3, 
Malachi or God through Malachi speaks of those that fear not God. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those that fear God and those that fear him not is the point Malachi is making. There's the wise and the foolish. There's the wicked and the righteous. Those walking in the broad way and those walking in the narrow way that leads to life eternal. There are many that it has to be said of them, not that we have the right to say it. You understand that I'm not suggesting that, but there are many that simply the day will prove that they have not the root of the matter in them. Fig trees with beautiful leaves, bright green, bountiful leaves on the fig tree, but no fruit, no fruit. It's not only just taking the name of Christ to ourselves properly, but it's being jealous for the name of God. Walking in the name that we take to ourselves. Talking in the name, as these were doing. Speaking one to another. It's not only bearing the name, but it's living the name. You remember Phinehas and that account, that horrible account in Numbers? Chapter 25 of the people of Israel, the visible people of God, being tempted through the machinations of Balaam. And they sent their young women into the camp of the Israelites and they seduced many of the Israelites. Even a prince of the Israelites took one of these wenches into his tent. And it wasn't even a closed tent. According to most commentators, it was open. He was doing it so openly with this heathen that Phinehas took a spear and in his zest he drove it through both of them, one spear. But we read later the word of God regarding that, that Phinehas he extols Phinehas for being what? Jealous with my jealousy. Phinehas was jealous for the name of his God. He cared about the name. He wanted it honored. He wanted it magnified. And so he lived the name. And he slew those that were bringing reproach upon it. Of course, we think of the words of Jesus Christ himself when he, those horrific words at the end of chapter 7 of Matthew, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord. You see, these were taking the name of God in vain. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy by thy name? And by thy name cast out demons. And by thy name do many mighty works. They may have done so. They may have done so. But they were taking the name of God in vain. They were taking his name in vain. We think of those sons of Siva in Acts 19. That were seeking to. They were being strolling exorcists I believe were told. And they were going to exercise someone calling on the name of Jesus. 
and some evil spirit jumped upon them and manhandled them. And what did he say? In a sense, even as Jesus said to those in Matthew 7, I never knew you, this evil spirit said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? Who are ye to take the name of Jesus Christ upon your lips? Who are you? Who are you to call me Lord, Lord, when you don't even know me? But in this text, I believe we see here gathering in his name. Gathering in the name of Christ. Gathering in the name of God. Reverencing his name, the name of Jesus Christ and the Father, God. Thinking upon it, meditating upon it, speaking to one another of it. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. How would that be? Another activity of the church. Speaking to one another of his name. And when we say that, of his name, of his person, of, of the glorious attributes of our God. Who is like unto thee, O God, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. Communicating one with another. That's what they, this text says, they that fear God come together to do, gathering in his name. Sadly, Paul writes in Romans 2, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Oh, may it never be. May it never be said of us. If we fear God truly, ought we not to be seen, this not to be seen in our communicating together. And I'm not talking about our communion once a month, although that's included. But I'm talking about communicating one with another. Getting to know one another better and better and better as we strive together to know Christ better and better, to know God better and better. We ought to be communicating together. We ought to be seeking to sharpen one another. And we ought to be striving to honor God's name together. And I trust by his grace that this is what we're seeking to do when we gather together. But can we ever do it enough? Can we ever do it enough? I'm not talking about adding to our meeting schedule, but I'm talking about individuals communicating together, coming together. We're told that God will put these things in his book of remembrance. <coughs> it's reminiscent of Ahasuerus. The Persian kings had their books. And you remember how that, that Mordecai, his name was written down because he had delivered the king from potential assassins. And out of the blue, through a dream in the night or something, Ahasuerus thought about Mordecai and realized he had forgotten about him. And he called his servant and said, has anything ever been done for Mordecai? Because he was reading in this book that was handed him, this book of remembrance, we could call it. And so then, when he saw that Mordecai had never been rewarded, he rewarded him. And God rewards his people. He keeps, he keeps the names of these people and the things that they've said and done in his book, it says here. He records them in his book. 
he hearkened and heard, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared him and honored his name. And I'm not suggesting that there's any merits that are coming, but God is a giver of rewards, and he is the best, the most loving giver, is he not, to his people. These are not merits. These are nothing that we merit. But even David says, put my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? In Psalm 56. God will put these things in his book. He keeps a book. To accommodate our puny brains. He speaks of it in that sense. God, of course, doesn't need any help remembering. But he doesn't forget. But this is what he wishes for his people to do. To gather together. To speak one with another. Those that fear him. And he will hearken and he will hear. And a book of remembrance will be written before him for them that feared him and that thought upon his name, that reverenced his name, that love him and fear him in that reverent submission because they love him, because they belong to him, because they are his sons and daughters. Let us pray. O oh Lord of God, we thank thee for the reality.